I'm Jana Marin, and you're listening to season three of More to the Story, the podcast that's all about creative nonfiction and the power of sharing your personal story. Tell me a story, tell me true. I want to know what happened to you. The stars are all out and the night is so blue. Tell me a story and I'll I'll tell mine to you. Welcome to More to the Story, Season 3, Episode 1, the show all about something near and dear to my heart, telling true stories without shame and sharing them with the world. In addition to this podcast, I also publish a literary magazine called Under the Gumtree dedicated to creative nonfiction and visual art. The magazine is published quarterly in digital and print. If you enjoy the readings on this show, I encourage you to check out the complete stories by purchasing a single issue or getting a subscription. Your purchase directly supports the work of the artists and writers we publish. Digital subscriptions are $20 a year and print subscriptions are $80 a year. All that info is online at underthegumtree.com. You can also find out about my work as a book editor and coach for nonfiction authors at janamarlise.com. Welcome back. Welcome back to More to the Story. I'm so thrilled to be here. Thank you for listening. It's been a long break, and I didn't even realize how long it's been until I started working on the audio for this season, checked my website, and saw that it's been about three years since the last season of this show became available. And this is a special season. I've been collecting audio. Some of the audio is a little old, but it's still very valuable, still very much worthwhile listening for you to learn about the life of nonfiction authors and writers. Um, And the first four episodes this season, I recorded live. I was able to sit across the table from writers and contributors to Under the Gumtree who I had never met in person before at AWP. Some of you may be familiar with AWP, the Association of Writers and Writing Programs annual conference that happens, well, it had been happening in person every year up until 2020 when we had the pandemic happen. But in 2019, that conference happened in Portland, Oregon. And I was able to sit down with four writers to record live episodes, which is so exciting. So just so you know, you'll hear some background noise. You'll hear the crowd of folks wandering and ambling about in the convention center where the conference takes place. Where we happened to be sitting was kind of like this little nook away from the crowd on the second level next to an elevator. So you may hear the elevator ding a couple times. And I also have to let you know, being my first time recording live on the road, if you will, (laughs) we did have a little bit of troubleshooting with our mics and our setup. So audio isn't the highest quality, but again, it's still very worthwhile for your listening. And I'm super excited to bring these episodes to you. So the first episode I have to bring to you from that live in-person recording is with Tori Weston. Tori received a BFA in writing and literature and an MFA in creative writing from Emerson College. While working for the professional studies department and finishing her last semester of grad school, she wrote a proposal for creative writing high school program. 17 years later, she is now the assistant director of pre-college programs at Emerson College. And when she's not running the pre-college program, she balances her professional life with her creative life as both a writer and artist. 
Her writing has appeared in What's Up Magazine, Providence Journal Bulletin, Sleep Magazine, and of course, Under the Gumtree. She has also been featured as a storyteller in the Risk Live show, the podcast, and book. Her artwork has been shown at the Somerville Museum, Diesel Cafe, and Block 11 Cafe. Tori's essay, The Day I Got My Life Back, appears in issue 26 of Under the Gumtree from January 2018. And again, I spoke with Tori in March 2019 at AWP in Portland, Oregon. And before we get to our interview, here is Tori reading three flash pieces, The Hardest Walk, Birthday Cake, and Dance Floor. It was the summer of 1987. I was 11 and the tallest girl in my elementary school the only one who had breasts big enough to fill a bra. I didn't realize that the shape of my body, even hidden in a pair of athletic shorts, a baggy t-shirt, would place me in a higher age bracket. This particular day, I was waiting for my friend Wendy to come outside. As I waited, cars would pass, most of them relatives or friends of my mom or grandparents waving hello. One car, driven by a white man with a Tom Selleck mustache, slowed down and the driver yelled, how much? Not understanding, I yelled back, what? How much for you to sit on my face? The question made no sense to me. He pulled his car over and before he could yell again, my friend's mom opened her apartment window and yelled, she ain't no hoe, go on before I call the cops. The man drove away. Tori, Wendy can't come out and play today. She's on punishment. As I walked home, I was still not sure what happened. It took me about a day to figure it out, but just didn't understand why would he say those words to me. I was 11, just a kid. The next year I wouldn't leave my house without my Walkman, loud enough to block out everything, and the excuse to never have anyone ask me questions. Birthday cake. 13. Tomorrow I'm going to be 13. I close my eyes and try to imagine what my party would be like, what 13 will be like. Just a few hours ago, my sister, my cousin, and I decorated my grandmother's basement with blue and white streamers and shiny gold letters that read, Happy Birthday. My mom has promised that my birthday cake would no longer be in the shape of Smurfette, Strawberry Shortcake, or any other cartoon character. It's 1989, and I am now a young woman and deserve a cake that is a little more sophisticated and grown up. I feel hot. Maybe the heat is turned on too high. Mom always mentions that our apartment gets too hot. I kick off the covers and wonder if it's too hot for ice cream cake. An ice cream birthday cake would be nice, but mom says that no one would want to eat an ice cream cake in the middle of January. As the salty taste of his sweat touches my lips, I wonder if my birthday party will be like the school dances, bouncing and getting sweaty to my prerogative, or slow dancing and grinding to Roni. Lying still and stiff, I close my eyes tight and try to think about blowing out my candles, but my chest feels too heavy to inhale. His breathing hot, short puffs of air against my ear, it burns, not the way birthday candles do. 13. He said that this will always happen anyway to girls like me. Girls who think they know more than adults. Girls like me who think they know everything. I ignore his words and what he's doing. It's pushing away the thoughts of birthday cake. Cake with chocolate frosting and those candy letters that melt in your mouth. 
13. Tomorrow I'm going to be 13 and there will be chocolate cake with sprinkles and candy letters that spell my name. My mom tells me that I can choose who can come to my party. I can choose who can have cake. Tomorrow when I turn 13, I will tell her that he can't come to my party. I will tell her that he can't have any birthday cake. Dance floor. The night my Uncle Glenn died, I was at Lupo's Heartbreak Hotel in Providence, Rhode Island, shaking my ass to Parliament Funkadelic. While it looked like I was part of one nation under a groove, I was trying to picture what my uncle's last moments of life were like. An artist not able to see or hear in his final hour. As my body started to feel the contact high from the smoke George Clinton and the P-Funk crew were puffing from the stage, each of my senses were heightened. I danced with the guy next to me. With the music pumping, stage lights flickering, I reveled in the ability to hear, see, and feel while miles away at an assisted living facility, Uncle Glenn's ability to do anything were shutting down. In the months after his death, I would go out dancing. Each time I descended into the darkness of a club, my thoughts would roam while I moved to the thumping bass. And now I understood why these walls were the ones Uncle Glenn found comfort in. This was his church. Like a devoted disciple, I swayed my hips, limboed up and down against the sweating bodies next to me, and shouted my praise to the DJ. While others mourned with prayer, my grief was taken to the dance floor. Thank you, Tori, and Thanks. welcome to More to the Story. Thank you for having me. This is so exciting. It's the first time I'm doing a podcast recording in person, and you're sitting across the table from me. (laughs) Yes, and at AWP. At AWP, (laughs) which is the lovely din of the hubbub that is happening behind us. Yes, yes. So um, I'd love to start by hearing more about your writing background and how you got into life as a writer. Okay. So I didn't really think much about being a writer when I was younger until... um, sixth grade. I had a sixth grade teacher, Miss Paula Perro, and she would make us write these essays, like these one-page essays titled My Life as a Cornflake or My Life as a Doorknob. And I thought it was silly, but it was one of those things where as I started to write and we had to read it in front of the class, she started pointing out like, wow, that's a very interesting, you know, take on how being a cornflake or something. (laughs) And I think she began to see that out of all of the kids in the class, I was the one that was more eager to read books. And so she was always like, here's Anne of Green Gables. Here's Summer of My German Soldier. But I think she began to see that, okay, this is a student that is a writer. And she was the first person to tell me that, you know, you're a writer. And I was like, oh, no, I'm not. I just like to, you know, I like grammar. (laughs) (laughs) And that is a very... um funny aspect of writing to be drawn to the grammar yeah like I love doing grammar packets oh my and gosh I liked you know we had to uh, she was also the only teacher that I had in elementary school that would make us memorize poems um, I'm originally from Rhode Island so in New England you know we would have like Henry Wadsworth Longfellow and or the Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven and she would make us memorize these poems and if everyone memorized the poem and all recited it in the class, she would throw us a party. Oh. And so I just thought, oh, wow, this is a great teacher. It's fun. But as I look back, I began to see that she was slowly planting the seed of, I'm showing you that this is what you're good at. Mm-hmm. Um, and, sh- and I, like, you know, if I could 
thank her personally. I would. Yeah, that's <laughs> because amazing. Because she was the person that like really like, you know, as I hit middle school, I was like, yeah, I think she's right. I like telling stories. Yeah. Yeah. So I love the example of the exercises she was giving you with your life as a cornflake or a doorknob, like these inanimate objects that really force you to have some imagination and imagining what life like for that thing would be like. So tell me a little bit about how you went from that kind of aha moment as a young writer where your exercises are soundingly, seemingly primarily fictionalized to being drawn to the nonfiction form and specifically the flash form because you read the flash pieces and it's a very short, short form that is not an easy form, I don't think. I find the short form to be more challenging than than the long form. Yeah, so 1990, I was in, I think, ninth grade and that's when the Doors movie came out and Every creative person in my high school was obsessed with the doors and, you know, all these boys are writing bad poetry and I was the only girl in our poetry group. (laughs) So that started, you know, me thinking maybe this is what I want to go to college for. And um, when I applied to college, I was I started off writing poetry. And when I graduated from Emerson, I was a fiction writer. And then I took a couple of years off to figure out what I wanted to do. And I was kind of drawn back to Emerson um, because, you know, at the time I was teaching, I was an after-school teacher in Cambridge. Um, I was working for a nonprofit. I was never sure if I could cash my paycheck. (laughs) And my friend, one of my Emerson friends was working at the college and my former boss, when I was a work-study student, had asked her, do you know Tori's looking for a job? And she's like, yeah, she hates her job. (laughs) (laughs) And so I ended up working for the college and that's when one of my uh, undergraduate instructors, who is now currently the chair of the writing department at Emerson, Maria Condora, saw me working in the office and she immediately walked in. She's like, you need to apply to grad school here. And at the time, I wasn't really thinking about getting an MFA in writing. I was just figuring out, like, do I want to do cultural studies? Like, do I want to become, like, a teacher teacher? And so she's like, just take my class. As an employee, you have tuition remission. Just take my class. And so I took her class. And I think that was it started dawning on me, like, oh, okay, maybe I should try this. And so there was four other employees that were applying to the MFA program. And I was the only one who got in. And so that started the, oh, okay, I think this is, this is it. I'm a writer. This is it. And when I graduated from Emerson, I did my thesis a collection of short stories. I have a huge family, a crazy-ass family. <laughs> and I would tell people these stories about my family. And they're like, do you ever think about writing them down? And I didn't think about writing it as nonfiction. I thought, you know, I, I just wrote it as fiction. And I grew up in a, my grandparents were transplanted Southerners. They moved up north. They were part of the Great Migration. They settled in Rhode Island. And my mom grew up in Rhode Island. So I had a very church Baptist family. And here I am growing up in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, where majority of the families there are, you know, first generation Irish, French Canadian, and then most of my friends are Catholic. So when I would talk about, they would be like, oh, we went to mass. It was only 45 minutes. How long is your church? And I'm like, three hours. (laughs) (laughs) And so as I would tell them these crazy stories that would happen at church and everything, everyone's like, that's so funny. Why don't you write that down? So about a year or so after I graduated from Emerson, I applied uh, for the Walker Scholarship at the Fine Arts Work Center. 
and I took a workshop with Robin Hemley, which was a mix of fiction and nonfiction. And he had us do this exercise where we had to close our eyes for five minutes and think about the first kitchen we were ever in. Oh. And that I ended up writing an essay that I'm still working on called Grandma's Kitchen. And that's what started the nonfiction. And the more I started writing, the more I started realizing I can't tell these stories as fiction. I have to tell them as nonfiction. And so the way the flash started happening was there were so many interconnected stories that it was hard for me to kind of, how do I tell this? But I just want to tell this one moment. Mm -hmm. And so like birthday cake is a perfect example where, you know, I was struggling with, you know, as a survivor of sexual abuse. I'm like, how do I tell this in a way that isn't, you know, I don't want to be like, write a whole essay about this moment. I need to write about that particular moment, that moment of you're still a kid, but you're not a kid anymore. And that's that, that it just happened. It took me two years to write those four paragraphs. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. And with the pieces that you read, uh, Birthday Cake in particular, you have this really intense experience paired with something that is meant to be lighthearted and happy and cheerful, a birthday and yeah. like a birthday cake. And yet what I found myself drawn to in that piece was the heat and the the image of the birthday candle and the heat, but the heat isn't from the birthday candle. Yeah. And it's not from the weather because it's January. Yeah. And the subtlety and the nuance of those images and the feeling of heat, um, it's just very well done. Oh, thank you. Yeah. yeah. Talk a little bit more about the pieces that you read um, because they are individual, very short pieces, and yet I see similar themes in them. Yeah. So when you're writing Flash, are you doing that intentionally? Are you thinking about the themes to connect different short pieces all together? Or do the pieces come independently and then, oh, it's more coincidental that there's like, a, like some uni- unity with the themes? Um, I think for like the hardest walk and birthday cake, those were kind of like, I was trying really hard to write about that experience. And then I, it made me think about the fact that, you know, I'm reading other memoirs about survivors. And one of the thing I wasn't seeing was in the hardest walk, I'm 11 years old. I have no idea that my body looks, doesn't look 11 years old. And that kind of like the outside world is showing you you're not a kid but you know that you're a kid in that moment of not really understanding why is these things happening to me, but also kind of like, I felt like I wanted to pinpoint how, at least for like the girls that I grew up with, that that innocence loss isn't not just like, you know, someone taking advantage of you. Some of it is the fact that you're a kid and you're not treated as a kid anymore and you're not understanding why people aren't seeing you like that. Okay. Um, and I tried to figure out, like I started out trying to write a long essay and then I realized, you know, this is broken up into pieces. And of course my therapist and I, we talk about it. And you know, one of the things that she talked about was a lot of survivors compartmentalize. And when she said that, flash made sense oh. because 
you compartmentalize certain things because you can't feel those feelings because you're trying to protect yourself. And so at least with those pieces, I was, you know, I have a couple of other pieces that are similar. They are flashes. And when you are dealing with trauma, you're compartmentalizing. So you're only like, I can only feel this amount or I'm only going to talk about this part, but I'm never going to talk about that part. Yeah. And so I wanted to do that. And with dance floor, while I'm writing, you know, did the workshop at the Fine Arts Work Center, um, I have a very large family. Like my grandmother is one of 12. My mom is one of nine. Wow. And at the time I like started really working through how I'm going to write these memoir pieces, people in my family started passing away. And so dance floor, it was more about the grief of losing certain family members. And I'm not just talking about like one funeral, like my grandmother passes away a year and a half later, my uncle Glenn passes away. Like when my uncle Glenn passed away, we had his funeral. Five days later, my sister got married. And a week later, we christened her daughter. <laughs> like, that's how rapid. And then a year and a half later, my uncle dies on Thanksgiving Day. And it was just like a 10-year period of constantly going to funerals. And I was joking because all my friends are getting married. <laughs> I joked with somebody. I'm like, wow, you know, marriage and funerals are kind of the same thing. And <laughs> so four weddings and a funeral, yeah. right? Yeah. And so I have this essay. It's written in second person. It's called The Unofficial Guide to Funeral Etiquette. And it's written like, um, like how you would give advice for someone planning a wedding. Because I've had to go through so many funerals that it was like planning a wedding. Except for you're not, you know, when you're organizing the food, it's like the food after the funeral. Or you're figuring out how we're going to dress this person. What do they really want? Or, you know, relatives thinking, oh, no, this person wanted to be dressed this way. To even, like, you know, how do we, when my uncle, who was five years younger than me, passed away, I couldn't even cry at his funeral because it was a parade of ex-girlfriends. All of his ex-girlfriends showed up to the funeral, and the current girlfriend was just looking at these lines of women coming down to look at his casket. And it was just like oh my God, this is like the jealous girlfriend who went to the wedding. And so there was just so many of those incidents <laughs> that when my uncle died, I like thought that was the best way to capture him because my uncle Glenn was out and gay in the 70s and 80s. And, you know, he always took, he was the first person to take me clubbing. And I thought that, that would be the perfect tribute is that capturing that one moment um, that we shared of, you know, the dance floor and, you know, going out to clubs um, grief is another compartmentalization. So it was right. easy to show that in flash. Yeah. Well, and when you were talking about the funeral and then the weddings and the christenings and another funeral, it's like there's no space to process one emotion. Yeah. You can't grieve. You can't celebrate because like they're happening back to back. Yeah. Um, and I'm glad you were talking about dance floor because I was noticing how in that piece and in the hardest walk, the music was sort of like a unifying theme around um, how you're processing what's happening. Like you end the hardest walk with the Walkman in your ears. Yeah. Uh, so I wanted you to talk a little bit about that too, and and what what music is for you in your life and in your writing, and is it an escape or a comfort or maybe a little bit of both. I think it's it's become a little bit of both. Like, I also feel like, you know, being a Gen Xer, it's almost like, how can you not have a music soundtrack? Because um, it's just like, if it wasn't MTV, it was like, you know, the radio, there was no internet. so Or a mixtape. I saw the cover to oh, your yeah. iPhone. Yeah, like tons of mixtapes. 
And um, so for me, like, the, you know, I grew up in a neighborhood. When people think of Rhode Island, they don't really think of Rhode Island as being a diverse place. And Rhode Island is a very diverse city. And Woonsocket, where I'm from, like, in my neighborhood, I grew up with Puerto Ricans, Vietnamese refugees, Laotian refugees, kids whose parents were from Ireland and they're the first generation. Like, so I grew up around so many different kinds of people. So we would be playing R&B, our Puerto Rican neighbors would be having church in their house, our Vietnamese neighbors would be singing karaoke like on the sidewalk. <laughs> so oh there was gosh. all of these sounds and all of these soundtracks. And our white neighbors who lived down the street, they would, you know, have the cars on cinder blocks outside their house listening to like Ozzy Osbourne and Black Sabbath. So there was this constant soundtrack in my neighborhood yeah. of just all these different types of music that it like for me music is you know kind of like when I think of songs I think of what happened that particular summer or you know the food that we ate or the barbecue that we went to or I had a friend named Quan Chai and she used to play me Laotian New Wave. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and then wow. she would translate the lyrics for me and I'm like, oh wait, so they're singing Adam Ant, but it's in La she's like, it's in Laotian, yeah. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah. So I was constantly surrounded, so my memories are all yeah. tagged to music. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That description of your neighborhood with all the different cultures and the music and the soundtrack, it just sounds very magical. Yeah, chaotic in some ways. Okay, yes. Um, but it was also, like, I am very thankful for growing up in that kind of environment, even though, yeah. like, racially it's sometimes segregated. But, you know, at the same time, it's like if you wanted to, you know, you know that if you went over Susanna's house, that her mom is going to be playing whatever salsa music is popular and that their house always smelled like something was, like, it was always rice and beans and something cooking. And when people came over to my grandmother's house, it was always like there was something being barbecued or, you know, fried. And that's where the smells. And then my grandparents, like on Sundays, because we were super religious, we had to play church music until we got back from church. And then after church, we could play whatever we want. And so it was like there was their soundtrack in my house. Right. So right. it was just kind of like it was chaotic. But it was also when I look back, I'm like, you know these are experiences I didn't know until I got to college that not everyone grew up like this yeah I mean speaking as someone who grew up in a very white bread neighborhood upbringing I was the opposite of that like yeah. by the time I graduated from college and got into the real world it was almost a little bit of culture shock around oh you mean like my super white conservative Christian college and church where I grew up isn't the way the rest of the world <laughs> operates. Yeah. I remember being in college and um, someone was overhearing me talk on the phone and my, my little sister was talking about you know a, a boy that liked her and so I'm like well is he is he Irish? Is he French Canadian? Is he Portuguese? Is he like Italian? Is he Cape Verdean? And one of my friends like what's Cape Verdean? I'm like what do you mean what's Cape Verde? You guys don't have Cape Verdeans where you live? And I had to, I'm like, and I realized, oh my God, most Cape Verdeans live in New England. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, so they're not black and they're not Puerto Rican. <laughs> I'm trying to explain to me. And I'm like, you never grew up with Laotians and Vietnamese people? And they're like, no. I'm no. like, couldn't believe I was explaining that to somebody. And it was just kind of like a culture shock for me because I'm like, wow, you don't live, you didn't live 
with Liberians, you know, yeah. they're like, what do you mean Liberians? I'm like, oh, they're Africans. And then they came over because of the Civil War. And so, you know, I can't really call myself African-American because they're more African-American. And somebody's like, I am so confused. And I'm like, how can you be confused? Right. <laughs> right. Um, tell me about what you're working on now. So right now I'm trying to, so I started, you know, probably like seven or eight years ago when I took Robin Hemley's class, it really got me into writing personal essays. And so what I'm trying to do now is revise, I have like revised a lot of the shorter ones, a lot of the flash ones, but revising a lot of longer ones and hoping to put together an essay collection. And then I just started working on, um, there was an article that came out about how most people who are retiring are doing a Golden Girls thing where they're like, you know, someone's buying a house and then they're having people move in. And because I've lived in, you know, I live in Somerville, Massachusetts, and so it's a hipster neighborhood. I live right on the border of Somerville and Cambridge, 43 years old. And for me, I didn't really think it was weird to have roommates because anyone who lives in the big city, you can't afford rent by yourself. Sure. And I began to go back and think about, oh my God, I've had 38 roommate situations since I moved out of my house. So I started working on the first draft of writing a memoir based on my roommates, like my roommate situations, and kind of like, you know, maybe a bigger social commentary about communal living, but also the fact that I have lived with, I lived with two opera singers. Like I've lived with so many different people not realizing that as I started to write down, I was like, wow, I've lived in so many different situations just so I can afford to live in Somerville. And I started asking people, how many like roommate situations have you had? And so that's the next big memoir project. I love project. it. <laughs> I love it. It sounds fascinating. And it's a it's diversity from a different perspective and a, just a different lens. Yeah. And I also love it. just kind of like how... People came out talking about, like, you know, not being able to, you know, oh, we have to pay off our loans and stuff like that. But I also think about, like, if you live in an artsy neighborhood, you kind of are accepting the fact that you will never own. I have accepted the fact I will never own a house. Yeah. 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 Um, And it's almost like, but at the same time, not owning a house has gotten me all of these amazing encounters with people. I love it. My husband and I are Airbnb hosts. which is not exactly the same thing, but it affords a similar experience where we have so many different people coming into our house on a regular basis who we would never meet otherwise. And we're being introduced to so many different cultures and lifestyles and professions that it's a fascinating way to encounter people and just get like a little glimpse into their life and learn about the world. Yeah. And also learn about, like, sometimes I feel like Um, especially in neighborhoods like Somerville um, in Cambridge, Mass. It's like I'm in a circle of academia and artsy people. And so to have a roommate who's an accountant and try to understand or a roommate that has a degree in like science in a way that he's like, oh, yeah, my job is to like I control our satellite system and then try to explain that to me. It's like I would never have encountered you because my circle is academia and, you know, writers and artists. Right. And by living with different people, I've been able to encounter people. I always joke about, what's it like to go to a real college? Because I went to an artsy college. <laughs> I'm like, oh, wow, you guys had actual classes. I had to write a sonnet for a final project. Right. You know? 
I love it. I love it. Well, Tori, it's been so great to talk with you today. Thank you so much for making time out of busy AWP schedules to meet up with me. Thank you for having me. Um, Tell me before we end, where can people find you online and learn more about you and your work? Sure. So I have a website, Tori Weston, T-O-R-I-W-E-S-T-N, writerartist.com. And my uh, Instagram handle is the same, Tori Weston, uh, writerartist. I pretty much post regularly on um, my Instagram more so than my website. <laughs> um, but I usually try to like you know post both art stuff and writing stuff. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. That was Tori Weston. Visit Tori online at ToriWestonArtist.com and on Instagram at ToriWestonArtist. You can also find the links and info from today's episode in the show notes online at MoreToTheStoryPodcast.com. If you're looking for a place to find more support with writing your true personal story, let me tell you about the More to the Story community. The More to the Story community is a free and safe space online for nonfiction authors to connect with each other, hone their craft, share their experiences, and make real progress on their projects. You'll connect with me and my team of editors, but you'll also connect with other writers just like you. Visit janamarlise.com slash community for more info and to request to join. I hope you'll join me. I would love nothing more than to support your writing journey of telling your story without shame. Next time on More to the Story, I talk with Jamie Chesbro, another Under the Gumtree contributor and author of the book, A Lion in the Snow, a collection of essays on fatherhood. To subscribe to this podcast, go to itunes.com slash more to the story. While you're there, leave a review. I love feedback. I love hearing from you and it helps other nonfiction writers just like you find the show. More to the Story is produced out of my home office in Sacramento, California. Special thanks to my husband, Jeremy Marin, who wrote and performed the theme song. You can visit us online at moretothestorypodcast.com. Follow Under the Gumtree on Instagram and Twitter at Under Gumtree. I'm Jana Marin, just Jana on Twitter, Jana Marlise everywhere else. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon on the next episode of More to the Story. Tell me a story, tell me true, I want to know what happened to you. The stars are all out and the night is so blue. Tell me a story and I'll tell mine to you. Sitting on the balcony, drinking up our wine Talking about the way that we used to live our lives The words in the books, man, they're nothing but lines I look into your eyes and you look into mine You say, tell me a story, tell me true I want to know what happened to you The stars are all out and the night is so blue Tell me a story and I'll, I'll tell mine to you